we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast, from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 21, Urban Concepts, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Patterns and Paradigms. We hope you enjoyed our last episode with Simone Development. Today's episode will be our last until we resume after Labor Day. While we wish you all time to be outside, we have a great deal of work to tend to over the next three months. Um, we will return with a great fall lineup. If you have any topics in mind, drop us an email. Of course, feel free to use the break to catch up with past episodes by downloading them through Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite one. Or, um, well, actually not or, but and, please take a moment to share one of your favorites with someone else so that they can be introduced to patterns and paradigms. This week's bubble or trend, supply, supply, supply. Kind of reminds me of the old Gomer pile if you're old enough to remember, surprise, surprise, surprise. But when we return in the fall, we will see where the pandemic-induced supply shortages are, whether it is food, as all the restaurants open at once and are all demanding they need supplies, or labor as demand for production heats up, there seems to be far more supply side shortages than originally anticipated. If you were looking to build a new house, good luck, as there is a shortage of lumber. This one is already exacerbating a shortage of new homes driving prices through the roof, pardon the pun. If it continues, expect the Fed Reserve to step in and revisit interest rates. So bubble or trend? Well, we gotta look at this one as a trend at least until September. And that's as far as we have to weigh in on this. The economy and society, for that matter, is going through what we would call the great resettling. There are a number of things that need to find equilibrium post-pandemic. So while this might appear to be a bubble, we think of it more like a trend as we settle all parts of our society to a new leveling. We're struggling to find the right words here, but Remember, this is something that hadn't happened in a hundred years. It is going to take a while to see just where we are. So I'm here with my partner in pattern, Joe Chaika. 
The New York Times over the weekend, Joe, had an article on world demographic trends. As we at Pattern consider ourselves pretty good demographers, or at least pretty good analysts of demographic information, there was a lot to digest in that article. Unfortunately, we never seem to be able to get people as excited as we are about demographics. But underneath most societal trends, there is an element of demography. What was your favorite takeaway from the article, Joe? Well, it was a little depressing, to be honest with you, but there's a lot of takeaways. And I think it's really important that we understand what what was behind this article in that we're losing people, we're losing population. There's something out there called a replacement rate, which needs to be uh, at 2.1. And that's simply uh, the amount of people needed um, that replaces our society. Uh, Joe, that's, that kind of works like for every two adults, there needs to be two kids. That's correct. And there's something called the fertility rate. And so when the replacement rate, I'm sorry, when the fertility rate gets a little complicated, drops below 2.1, we lose population. And ever since 1971, our fertility rate has been below 2.1. Today, it's actually about 1.7. And it is an issue. It's not only an issue here, but it's an issue around the, the, the entire globe. 183 countries and territories out of 195 will have fertility rates below the replacement rate by 2100. That's, that's not that. Yeah, that's not too far away, right? And it's actually forecasted that we're going to start shrinking by 2062, according to the University of Washington. And even if we rapidly increase this rate, it would take decades to take effect. The lack of immigration is an issue, but it's not a long-term solution because the other countries are facing the same issues we are. So it would be sort of a, you know, a, a swap out, if you will. People leaving countries that are losing population into other countries that are losing population. It's a lose-lose scenario. But Joe, Joe, it, it is one of the solutions for, you know, I don't want to be, um, one of the great parts about America is that immigration has led to probably what makes, one of the many reasons of what makes this country as great as it is when we have allowed for immigration, the blending of different cultures, thinking, for sure. ideas. It, it was what this country, at least in my belief, was founded on. Absolutely. And one of the components certainly um, that immigration allows is fixing labor shortages. And yet, you know, if you want to shut the door and you have labor shortages, you're shutting off combined with what you're talking about, you know, the low fertility rate and being below the replacement rate. Joe, one of our favorite discussions has come up many times last week was that, oh my God, we're going to be building in our um, community more housing. 
and the impact on schools. You have an opinion on that one? Yeah, just a little bit. So the old adage is when you build a house or an apartment, you increase the school population by 2.5 kids. We haven't found the 0.5 kid, but can you imagine 2.5 kids? That was based on a Rutgers study done many decades ago. And people on zoning boards and planning boards and town boards, they're still stuck on that. Right now, we're actually probably about 0.6 or 0.7 kids per unit. So it's substantially lower. And so the argument of you build a subdivision of 100, um, 100 units or 100 homes, we're going to add 2.5 kids per. So it's 250 kids per 100 units. Not happening. Not happening at all. People are just not having kids. And, and it's a big impact. The population pyramid, which should be look like exactly a pyramid. It should be the younger people on the bottom and the older people on top. And the bottom supports the top. Well, the population pyramid has actually been reversed. There's less on the bottom, more on top. So what happens? That population pyramid, if you think of a triangle, it's standing on its point. It's going to fall over. Why does that happen? Well, not enough Gen Z and millennials are having kids. And if they do have a family, as we like to say, one and done. The birth, the birth rate itself has actually dropped by 4% during the pandemic. On you know, popular belief, oh, people are probably going to have more kids because they're all home and not doing anything else. Didn't happen. So for many people, it's an economic decision, which is unfortunate. Social Security, again, if you look at that population pyramid, Social Security is going to have a big impact. Who pays for all of the elderly population retiring? With an aging population, we're going to need more health care providers and services. Other workforce issues come into play. More than a lack of skilled people, we have a lack of people altogether. By 2026, there's going to be an estimated workforce deficit of some 6 million people. That's only five years away. Baby boomers were retiring at the rate of 2 million per year. Last year, 3 million retired. The United Nations actually said that before the next century, there will be two people dependent upon each worker. So a third depends on, I'm sorry, two thirds depends on one third. Labor force participation rate dropped from 5% in 1980 to uh, between 1980 and 2019, the percentage of of the of a given population that is employed or actively seeking employment is available for work. That's the definition of the labor force participation rate. About seven million able-bodied people chose not to work. Millennials, they're inheriting wealth from the baby boomers. The opioid crisis pulled almost a million prime-age men from the workforce in 2015 alone, and some 38% of men aged 25 to 34 still living with their parents. Those three elements right there are huge demographic implications. Automation and technology will help to some degree, but there's more critical mass. There is more of a critical mass of robots building and providing direct services we, need, we have a labor issue. Technology can't fully replace human beings. 
We need targeted skills and training with higher retention rate of all workers. Colleges and universities will need to enhance their services, their programs, and overall their education model to incorporate more non-traditional students, part-timers, parents with a child, or people taking care of their elderly parents or grandparents. So it's gonna be a paradigm shift from everything, from working in a manufacturing center to working in a warehouse distribution center to college programs looking for their next student. Well, if that doesn't give you enough to think about between now and our return just after Labor Day, I don't know what does. Demographics, I know it's just numbers, but as Joe just pointed out, all the realities of what those numbers mean. So thanks, Joe. You're welcome. Our guest today is Jared Rodriguez. Jared is one of our favorite young thought leaders in the area of community development. Jared is degreed in civil engineering and architectural studies. He worked eight years in real estate development, but distinctly focused on green energy components. Jared is now full-time as the principal of his own consulting firm, Emergent Urban Concepts, which helps communities determine who they want to be. Jared has an opinion on just about everything, but they're educated opinions. Um, They're based on having spent years trying to figure out how things work. You'll hear many of them in today's discussion. Hi, Jared. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Um, Pretty good. You know, this for our listeners, this, you know, I'll I'll repeat it a few times probably, but this will be our last as we take our summer break. And we couldn't be more delighted than to have you with us. Um, How did you know that this virus was not just a virus, but was going to be uh, something more than that? Where were you? So I, I mean, this is absolutely crazy. I read an article by, I cannot remember who it was, but he was talking about exponential growth and how, you know, massive growth can be hidden in plain sight without even kind of knowing it. So this was around the time where they like put a cordon around, or maybe just before they put a cordon around New Rochelle. Um, that, that, that was the first whatever that was they yeah i mean it wasn't the first right so like my my wife is a nurse practitioner she works in manhattan and throughout november and december they were seeing covid cases they just didn't know it was covid um so the first like major i guess major outbreak that we were aware of right as a, a state public health authority was new rochelle but it definitely looking back was not the first so i read this article about exponential growth and how it's sort of like hidden in plain sight and then all of a sudden it skyrockets right and hospitals are shutting down because they're re- you know reaching capacity and that could happen in like less than a one week period right just sort of what we experienced um i actually went to london <laughs> on march i think it was march 8th and so went to london after the new rochelle guy was identified <laughs> and yeah and then wore an n95 mask 
throughout all the airports and on the airplane. And people were like making fun of me, you know, in the subway too, right? People were sort of like, what, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And I'm like, are you, you're watching Asia, right? Like they're doing it. So we should be doing it. And this is an air, you know, this is an airborne disease, right? And people, and then, you know, even the CDC was saying it's not an airborne disease, right? I don't know what the ulterior motives were, but very unclear communication in the beginning. Um, And so by the time I was returning, it was like, right before the shutdown on March 13th, it was like Friday the 13th. And, uh, you know, by then it was pretty clear because I think the market was crashing and, you know, in, in London, it was starting to get a little bit freaky, uh, you know, and then you started seeing like everybody starting to wear masks and yeah. So did you have any problem coming home from London or was it before they remember that at some point the president came and said no more flights from Europe? No, no, no. It was fine um, coming back. Uh, and it was actually like really easy to get back. I was just sort of freaked out. <laughs> well, uh, join the clubs. So. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I mean, luckily, I didn't I didn't get it. And very few people that I know did, but obviously it was like a tremendous tragedy. And it's one example of um, our infrastructure kind of failing us, right? And in this case, it was public health infrastructure. So I am one of the people that believe this was a full out failure to identify a risk and take appropriate action. Um, And it was, and we, you know, we paid the price with, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths. Which is yeah, truly across six hundred thousand. So, yeah, yeah. All right. So, Jared, for the benefit of our listeners, um, let's describe what emergent urban concepts are, which is your own baby, I think. Yeah. And and then you also work for Lefrak Development. Sure. So actually, Lefrak is a client of Emergent now. Um, okay. I am full on, you know, in my consulting firm. Uh, I've I've had this firm sort of off and on actually since 2007 (laughs) when I was an undergrad. So uh, with a few friends of mine, we started a consulting firm that focused on planning for large scale renewables, um, mostly in New England and Western New York. So at the time, there were a lot of wind power developers that were approaching municipalities and industrial development authorities. Um, and asking for deals like approvals on these really large projects, because that was, you know, in 2007, that was the last time that um, wind was competitive with natural gas. Uh, obviously, like the recession turned everything upside down and the federal government made a decision to use natural gas as, quote, a bridge fuel. And they pumped a lot of funds into development of natural gas and the price collapsed. Um and then wind became less competitive. So I actually sort of took a almost like a 10-year hiatus from doing consulting um, and got a master's in real estate development, um, you know, coming off of my undergraduate degree in civil structural engineering and architectural studies. Um, and then, you know, went to work for uh, the LeFrac organization in New York. Um, and I had always been really interested in real estate development. It was sort of the thing that I wanted to do as my my career. Um, you know, I worked for Martin Ginsburg on Havistraw and a few other projects. 
um, you know, went, went again, went away to college and then started working with the left racks and at left rack, I, um, I mostly manage energy and energy conservation and then sustainability compliance, because, you know, over the past 10 years, there's been sort of a revolution in how um, emissions from buildings is regulated and how energy consumption is regulated. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of lived through the whole, um, how do you convert tens of millions of square feet of, of uh, residential and commercial space to all LEDs? <laughs> how do you, um, you know, take serious, like the issue of, of lack of insulation? Um, and then how do you kind of cut across a lot of different sectors to achieve, you know, solutions that meet objectives? um that are like very broad right and so that's sort of that's sort of what i think my expertise is is like i could look at objectives um coming from a lot of different stakeholders right who might have like very different points of view and i can understand when they're saying the same thing so that you can you know for lack of a better word kill two birds with one with one stone i mean i, I hate that you know i hate that uh, analogy <laughs> but um but yeah, so 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 yeah. I mean, uh, the experience with Leftrack was amazing. I mean, they are city builders. They they build at scales that few people are familiar with. I mean, they've they've acquired uh, rail yards from from uh, defunct rail companies and built you know hundreds of buildings, <laughs> uh, new cities springing up from nothing, like just south of the Hoboken Terminal on the Jersey City waterfront. Um, you know, Battery Park City. Uh, they were the first to build their Battery Park City. So they're a company that has vision. They don't have the reputation for being visionaries, but I, they really are, um, which is kind of kind of interesting. So I was lucky to work for them. So I, I grew up in Queens and there was Lefrak City. <laughs> right. Which was one of, I think, their earliest projects, which is how I know of them. So right. l- let's... Well, actually, I was going to go in one direction. So let me actually go in a different direction, which is, um, so New York City, the lack of people returning to work, all these tall urban skyscrapers in New York City, many of which are still far below capacity. Have you thought much about something like what do we do with them? And yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So what do we do, Jared? Right. Well, what's interesting though is leading up to the pandemic, the amount of density in skyscrapers, like office, was increasing dramatically. Uh, you know, it increased dramatically, and it was like the WeWork phenomenon, right? Cram as many people as you can into a single space. You know, the partitions come down, everybody's working really close to each other. So there was a dynamic where like we were at extremely high density, like sometimes double what it traditionally was, like certainly triple what it was in the 60s or the 70s when most of the building stock was built. I mean, think Sixth Avenue or Avenue of the Americas, right? Or Madison. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were already like really high. And it was almost to some extent you know, detrimental to the neighborhood because you flood these neighborhoods with mostly office workers and the entire retail ecosystem, right? Everything is oriented to nine to five. So when people leave, it dies. It's just dead. 
I mean, we've all experienced what it's like in Midtown, you know, on, on an evening outside of, say, the theater district, right? Um, it's totally dead. So, uh, and it's more dead now. <laughs> so, so I think honestly, the answer is we need to make fully livable neighborhoods. Every neighborhood needs to be like fully livable and functional and not just cater to or serve one use, right? Or one type of person. It has to have high levels of diversity. And that's how you create economic success. Because if you think about how we build or develop communities, I mean, it's really not unlike a natural ecosystem, right? I mean, it's it's our ecosystem. It's the one that we build, right? Um, but it's usually highly diverse, highly interconnected. And the only thing that prevents those things from happening are our own silly rules. Um, you need zoning and... Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, okay. and other restrictions that defy what our natural order is. Our natural order is to cluster and do a high diversity of things in within generally a walkable um, uh, scale. So we've been doing that for thousands of years. What what changed? <laughs> I mean, I could I could get into what changed, which goes back probably to nineteen hundred or the eighteen nineties. But so um, let, let me ask you this then: Could a skyscraper, you know, one of these eighty story residential towers or something, or commercial, you know, commercial? Well, more the residential or the higher ones. But what if they were mixed use, and you yeah. create? create you know like every third floor was actually residential and then the bottom floors were actually retail and then which they often are i just saw this new one open this 80 story one did you notice the one with the outdoor elevators um yeah. it's amazing maybe, maybe yeah I've, I've seen a bunch of proposals lately, and I think people are keying into this. And this is something that was happening before before the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic's sort of like an accelerator, right? Nothing yep. that happened during the pandemic was new. Not one thing was new. It was just extreme and accelerating, right? So all the trends that we're seeing are just accelerated trends that were already there. And... One of those trends was mixed-use skyscrapers, right, um, and incorporating different uses. And typically, what they what they'll do is like, you know, the 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 highest part of the skyscraper is condo, the middle is a hotel, and the bottom is retail and office, right? That makes sense because that's where the value is. Sure. Um, but you know, I would go further and say that artisan manufacturing is something that could happen in some of these large floor plate buildings. I mean, no reason why you can't do small batch manufacturing, um, especially if they are core spaces that have less value. Um, there's probably some level of boutique manufacturing that could that could occur. I mean, a lot of the stuff that went to Brooklyn, um, a lot of stuff that's coming to the Hudson Valley. Uh, but, you know, this is sort of the problem of like building purpose built buildings right like the building is built for a very specific use kind of like a walmart yep right it's how do you let it evolve because throughout the millennia the history of humans right uses and things and villages and settlements evolve right they have to change 
So why are we throwing all these resources at like a throwaway landscape? It kind of doesn't make sense versus like, what did they do in the 18, you know, 1880s and 90s in the Industrial Revolution? They built buildings that could become sort of anything, right? And that's like Garner Art Center, a lot of our old uh, factory and mill buildings throughout the Hudson Valley. So, you know, back then it was built to host manufacturing. And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, they started to attract, you know, artists um, and scenic design shops and all these other types of uses. And today there's a brewery boom or there has been for the past almost 10 years. Um, so what is what happens next? And we're, we're actually seeing uh, like a hospitality boom in the Hudson Valley. And I would argue that that will continue as the link between the New York tourism industry and the Hudson Valley continues to be solidified. I mean, we're going to continue to ride this this tourism boom, and it's not just um, for international tourists that are coming. Though that's that's a big, big market, and it will, I think, continue to be a big market once we get out of uh, COVID. Maybe bigger than ever before because everybody's just dying to not be cooped up in their house anymore. Um, but it's also like this weekend market. I mean, we've seen uh, major trend reversals in uh metro north ridership right it's sure. it's off peak i mean off peak is booming and weekend summers like summer weekends um and fall weekends are just booming like you can't even today actually last weekend um not a seat available on a metro north train headed back into the city from peak skill uh on a sunday evening wow so wait, wait, wait. Wait, Jared, so let's just set this up for our listeners. So New York City is this massive urban um, center to our south. And then the Hudson Valley, which is primarily our listeners, is um, for patterns listeners, is nine counties of which we're going to, I think your tourism transition is really helpful. But I want to ask one question, and then we're going to bring you up to the Hudson Valley since you have your you're, you've worked in both New York City and the Hudson Valley. So um, are you bullish? Will New York City come back as a yeah. young adult? Yeah, of course. Right. I mean, unless we have a population collapse, right? Because no one's having children. <laughs> yes. Yesterday's New York Times. Which is a again. thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I would say that for every person that says that they want to leave New York, there's 10 people lined up saying that they want to be there. So when prices readjust, spots get filled sort of immediately. Um, and it's always been that way. It's always been that way. We have a lot of neighbors in Westchester and Rockland that moved here in the 70s and 80s and said, you could keep the city. I like Westchester and <laughs> Rockland, right? But for every person that left there, eventually was someone to fill their shoes or 10 people to fill their shoes. And that's what we've seen happen. So the city always reinvents itself and is dynamic and changes. I mean, I know people uh, catastrophize over sea level rise, but the city's going to reinvent and find its way. There's been sea level, there's been catastrophic sea level rise for Lower Manhattan since the 18, since the 1700s, right? And it somehow changed and became something else. So landfilling is not impossible. We're really good at it. <laughs> well, Battery Park City, the new urban huh? park that was just opened, that's this floating 2.4 acres. It's it, it's fascinating to me. All right, so 
explain if I'm if I'm right, I think there's a difference between economic development and community development. And you have been very active in communities like Havistraw mm-hmm. and Ossining. Is there so what is community development versus economic development, if you agree that there is a difference? Um I have a hard time finding a difference because <laughs> all I all I think economic development is or the economy is is just the it's this the economy is the speed and direction and interconnectivity of how money flows. That's all that it is, right? Okay. And and all that is doing is just expressing one aspect of like a society. That's it, right? And you could place rules on the society, right? And you can uh, shape it based on how you require people settle and the patterns of development that occur. Um, and then that just expresses an economy. So I, I don't know, I have a hard time finding the difference. I mean, community development maybe is a little bit more fine-tuned and, and socially oriented, like actually thinking about the different social connections that, it, that exist in a, in a particular location. Um, but everything rolls up into the economy ultimately. Um, and I, I always use this kind of, I always use this sort of analogy, like the, the way we've done economic development is very much like, like very large scale farming, <laughs> How right? so? How uh, so? sort of like mono, mono culture, soybeans on a thousand acres. Right. Um, because you know we look for like the silver bullet right like we want to attract a really large employer we think about it regionally from a very regional scale um and we sort of lack the nuances that occur on a very local basis but you know we're set up to be sort of like a top down the state has a lot of control there's county level economic development agencies you know there's large regional think tanks like pattern right um and we sort of lack the other than maybe really good chambers of commerce, we lack the on the ground understanding of how places function um, on a main street basis, right? Uh, and so community development, I think, is like the bridge between um, like the large scale farming <laughs> and you know people doing gardening on their own plots. So I mean, in that way, really, it is it is like economic gardening, right? You're you're attempting to create fertile ground for um, positive change in in communities, and you're trying to generally be, I think, inclusive of the people that are already living there versus trying to land a spaceship on a community to cause major change. I think it's a more nuanced version of economic growth. So you're a trustee in the village of Sleepy Hollow. You have done work in Havistraw which is a relatively small community. Um, Ossining also is a small village. Um, When you're working in these municipalities, that is closer, I think, just because of scale to what you would call community development. So how do you try to organize them and say, hey guys, we have to think about our communities a little bit differently than we did before. Any any thoughts come to mind? Because you you work with you've done. I mean, even if you talk just about Garner Art Center and Rockland, 
it is a a a um a, a probably a story unto itself about how to take an old textile mill and try to say, how can we energize it today? So examples from the communities you've worked in about how you've, you know, try to bring community development and energy to them. So, so like how an ecosystem emerges, it takes a really long time. <laughs> and this is why I think state agencies uh, or even, you know, regional, you know, agencies um, are focused on, I guess, what I call like catastrophic change, like big sort of more immediate change versus like incremental evolutionary change. Because one, you know, we generally don't have the patience or the perseverance to see, see something through over like a multi-decade period. Um, and two, there's I call it like catastrophic amounts of money available to do big things. So oftentimes the way to do economic development or that we've done it traditionally is like that spaceship lands in a community and it creates major change, right? I mean, think like White Plains or what's happening in New Rochelle or Yonkers or um, even to, to some extent Peekskill, but we're going to see more of that over the coming, I don't know, probably five years. Um, so, you know, it's when you when you do community development or community scale development and you're causing um, thoughtful, incremental, evolutionary change, uh, you have to have really good relationships with people that hold power. Um, you have to understand the community and where power lies in the in the community right? Who has a voice, who doesn't, who should have a voice that doesn't. <laughs> and then you have to come up with plans that everybody can sort of get on board with, right? Um, and visions, right? So I was the, I was asked to be the chairman of uh, the comprehensive plan. It's called Havistraw Adelante or Havistraw Forward. Um, and I mean, that was an amazing, like amazing process, right? Lots of public outreach sessions. Um, embedding in the community during events, uh, trying to reach the different players in the community like multiple times throughout the process um, and and make sure that they that they understand like why a vision is is useful, right? because it's it's kind of showing you like this is where you could go and all the decisions that you make between now and there. I mean, you're never going to exactly get there, right? But you should orient all your sort of decision making um, to at least put you moving in that in that direction. And so, you know, whether it's Havistar or Garner or now Sleepy Hollow, um, it's it's relationships I think that are the most that are the most important. Um, and figuring also out figuring out how to um, elevate people that are already in the community that have the ability to make positive change, right? Because no one's going to do it themselves. You need to find effectively a small army of people that are like-minded that share the vision, right? To advance change. And it might seem like at first it's something extremely small, like, you know, building birdhouses and hanging them from street trees, <laughs> Right, or putting in a, a community garden, 
right? But then ultimately you pull more people in because they see positive change. I think people are attracted to positive change um, and they're on board with making with making more. Um, and then obviously I didn't talk anything about like regulatory or zoning, but all of that stuff, the rules that you place on the community um, have to evolve with the community's perspective and the community's desires. So wait, pause a second there because one of the things that I've always struggled with is that in the comprehensive plan process for a community, and they're trying to think what do they want to be, so they they you've been let's say you, you well you have been successful in getting people to coalesce around a vision. My struggle has always been five years later. How do we keep people on mission? This is where we're going. People move in, move out. People have different thoughts. Is that has that been an issue for you in thinking about how to get communities to evolve? Oh, I'll tell you in ten years. Ten years. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I I think the I think the problem is is that people think about these processes as like you do this once every you know name a period of time. Okay. Like Sleepy Hollow hadn't had a comp plan done in something like 25 years. I think maybe longer, actually. Um, and hasn't changed its zoning, right? So the, the zoning is almost like the original code, which is just crazy. Um, yeah. uh, and we could have a whole conversation about where that code came from. <laughs> right. It didn't come from local. <laughs> it didn't no. come from us. Yeah, it was given to us. Uh, so. So I think that engagement and the conversations about implementing the vision has to be always public and happening all the time. And so figuring out the right application or mode of, of creating that engagement, I think is really important. So, you know, in Havistra, for example, and this predates the comp plan, but it's interesting because it's information that sort of fed into the comp plan. Um, a number of volunteers and I uh, started a food crawl, right? And it was almost like a function that a chamber should do. Um, but in this case, it was like a local arts organization that was, you know, pushing this food crawl. And it was to sort of like, it was really interesting. It was to sort of um, celebrate you know, people walking up and down this main street, people of all different kinds from all different backgrounds, uh, like sort of rubbing elbows and, and interacting in a place where there is, in North Rockland, right, there's traditionally a lot of um, fear and racial animosity. So wait, wait, hold, hold on one sec. So a food yeah. crawl, so I spent a year in England, so I know what a pub crawl is, where you, know, <laughs> you go from one, you know, pub to another, to another, to another. So are you saying that if I'm just imagining what what a food crawl is, different ethnicities stopping in different places with a group of people and then introducing different cultures along the way? Yeah. I don't know. Help yeah, me. it's really wild. I mean, Havistra's got something like, I mean, we would get 25 restaurants. There's more than 25 restaurants in less than something like a four block radius in Havistra. It's really insane. So we would get around 25 restaurants joining this event and, you know, the doors would be open and people would stop in and basically get 
something like tapas. I mean, you could sit down and get a full full service meal, but but we would encourage people to hit as many of them as they could. Um, I love this. This is great. yeah. I mean, and there's everything. It's like Caribbean, Puerto Rican, Dominican, uh, Ecuadorian, Mexican, um, Asian. There's there's an amazing like French fusion restaurant in in downtown Havistra. So you know there were there was and there is like this really amazing opportunity to get people from different cultures to interact over food which is a lot easier to get them to do than anything else <laughs> and then we added Certainly beer to it we shut politics. it we shut it straight down and had a you know a beer garden and invited six like local or regional breweries to to sell their beer in the street and it was it's just an amazing you know there's live music it's an incredible event um, and it came out of like Facebook conversations on a community page where people saying like, I'm afraid to go to Havistra. It's like, well, do you ever? And they're like, well, no, because I'm afraid. And I'm like, okay, so we'll host this safe space event for you so that you feel safe <laughs> and right. comfortable. And you can experience like all of this really amazing food and realize that the people that are either running these businesses or live in the community aren't going to bite you, you know, when you show up to, to try this food. Um, and they did. And the, the foot traffic to these restaurants after we started this, like actually increased. And now there are, there are people that never, that like they'd never consider going to have a straw downtown, have a straw for, for lunch or dinner. And now they're sort of like regulars in you know, like a Central American restaurant. It's really absolutely incredible. Um, what it does is it just like shifts the perception or the window of what people to pe perceive to be acceptable. You know, this and the, these these issues are kind of like across the board. What do people perceive to be acceptable, right, in their community? Like what's normal, right? Mm -hmm. And if you can kind of nudge them out of that safe space, uh, and into some new perception. I mean, that's what community development is. Like you, you are radically changing how people think about themselves or their community um, to create opportunity. So, so I had wondered what your thoughts were going to be about the future of Main Street, but I, it sounds like you've you've given me clues here <laughs> that there there it was things are always meant to evolve. And will there be, you know, people always fear Amazon will take over the world in terms of everything will be delivered. But will there always be this need for gathering places and how do we sell them and what does what do we need to add to energize them as well? Right. So. As people. Become wealthier. Get educated travel, experience different things, they demand more, <laughs> right? They want meaningful relationships, meaningful experiences. They want to buy meaningful products, right? Uh, and they want to generally, like when this happens, they want to support their local economy and buy things produced locally. Right. Like we that's sort of that's a big macro trend mm -hmm. and all the consumer commodity products that we get 
which you, you might you used to get them at Circuit City <laughs> or wherever tops. You remember tops? Uh, all of those things are meaningless. They they don't bring meaning. They don't bring happiness. They're completely meaningless. Um, yeah, you could watch your favorite show, but that's meaningless. I think the pandemic is showing people like how meaningless <laughs> a lot of their life was. And this is actually one reason why a ton of people got into gardening. I don't know if you've noticed this, like people are like out in the dirt because they're realizing like, oh my God, how was I living like disconnected, right? And then you're forced into actual like forced disconnection. So you realize how disconnected you were before, right? When you actually have to step back and, and you know, assess where you're at. Um, lack of connection to nature and the community. Um, and we, you know, we kind of saw this, we saw this happen in the last recession, right? When everybody gets shaken away, like, hey, the system's not working, some of it's going to go away. Wow, that's scary, right? People become resourceful, they care more about their community, and positive change emerges. It's as the economy becomes more static and entrenched, right, and is growing on the results of that shakeup, that's the most dangerous period because that's when there's like agglomeration and larger and larger companies eating everything up. Mm -hmm. But then you get to the point where it explodes again and everything reshakes. <laughs> so I would argue like this system that we have where we go for very long periods of time without economic disturbance, right? And then there's this spectacular blow up. Um, that's not helpful for Main Street at all. <laughs> you know, that might be good for very large national and international corporations, right? If they can weather that extreme blow up. And usually the way that they weather it is the federal government comes in and helps them out. Um, they're not there for our main streets. So I would argue that more innovation and more change and more disruption occurring more regularly versus just entrenching um, powerful interests, right, over longer periods of time. I think that's probably a better system for us. But I mean, tell that to DC, there's, there's no way that they're going <laughs> to embrace that kind of a strategy. But, but, but Jared, it sounds as if that through the pandemic, you you almost had this, you, I'm not going to say you got what you want, but that in your theory here of this ultimate disruption, you shut the entire economy down. People have an opportunity to think what's important to them. Therefore, our main streets, is there a, this incredible opportunity for yeah. them to, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, only if you think about it, right, there were ways for all of us to support the places that we loved throughout this thing to keep them alive. Mm -hmm. Right. And the places that we love survived in general. Right. In I mean, I could think anecdotally about like my community or a bunch of communities that I frequent. It's the places that we love that survived. And it's the places that we kind of didn't or that weren't really managed well, it was like, uh, you know, that could be better. That didn't. 
And so you, we, we've always seen this in a place like New York, right? Oh, the, the restaurants are changing all the time. <laughs> it's because New York has a population of people that goes out to eat all the time and they know what a good restaurant is and they've got options. So if you're not really good and people don't love you, you're not surviving in New York. And we kind of have, I mean, that's what the pandemic did for most main streets um, and certainly malls. I mean, I don't know anyone that loves a mall, no. <laughs> uh, you know, or a big box store. I, you know, maybe sure you could find some people that love some big box store. Um, but that's what it is. And we keep the places that we that we love. And and if there's if you have a built environment that reduces the barriers to starting a business, well, that's more chances that you will eventually get a business that you love that will stick around for some time. Um, and in my opinion, it's not the large floor plate retail large square footage retail with no demising walls those things aren't those things aren't supportive of startup businesses or small businesses it's the 12 foot wide storefront right or the you know less than 20 foot wide storefront on a 25 foot lot on a main street those are the things that spur innovation because the barrier to entry is generally low you know to rent to accessing the space, to to renovating it because it's generally small. You don't have to renovate a twenty thousand square foot space, um, et cetera. So, so is okay. Some people are fans of what happened to, let's say, a Beacon or a Rhinebeck because they see it as, you know, it 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 has evolved. Some people look at it and say. It's been gentrified. It's not the way it used to be. Uh, we can't afford to live here. Where do you come at in, in that argument over, you know, we have to protect and we yet we have to evolve. So, yeah. So it's too, we have, it's too spiky. <laughs> why are, why do some communities succeed and others, you know, don't, right? Why do some, well, succeed, I guess that's the, you know, is it success if you gentrify and displace people? You know, I don't, I don't know. To the people that are being displaced, like if they're actually being displaced, no, that's not successful. But right. if they can get a job downtown, right, and do better than they were doing before, like net, net, even if rents increased, there's the possibility that they become a manager of a restaurant that does really well. I've seen it happen in Havistra, right? Right. You know, Latino, uh, first generation or immigrant young people getting a job as a busboy. It's their first job. They're in high school and eventually they become a general manager. And that wouldn't have happened with some level of what we call gentrification. It wouldn't happen. And sometimes I think like, you know, that it's this, this, the conversation around gentrification is like just not nuanced enough, right? Absolutely. Up to a certain point, it's integration. Up to a certain point, right? Once it tips the balance and goes over into all wealthy white people, it's no longer integration, right? It's, you know, you're excluding, 
right? But we do exclusionary practices all the time. We've got plenty of wealthy communities that are white only today. Mm-hmm. So if we have the opportunity to integrate communities and bring wealth and opportunity to people that didn't have it, I say we do it, but we have to figure out how to accommodate people of all needs as that evolution occurs. And that's what affordable housing can do, um, like regulated affordable housing where, you know, it is permanently affordable. Um, Cooperatives, you know, that might be regulated. I think all of those options are sort of on the table to keep a place accessible, but this always comes back to why are there superstar places and why are there not? Like, why is it so spiky? Why, why aren't all boats rising at the same time? And I personally would argue that it's a, it's a racial thing. Um, it's a racial issue. And I would, I would, I would recommend um, reading, I believe he, he's at the University of Minnesota. It's Myron Orfield. I don't know if you know who he is. I do not. Um, he was really influential in the Mount Laurel decision in New Jersey. Yes, that I know. And the Mount Laurel decision is effectively no community should, quote, bear the burden. And these are like, these are judges from the state Supreme Court in New Jersey. No community should, quote, bear the burden of providing all the affordable housing for an entire region. In effect, what they're saying is you can't warehouse people of color in a single community so that all the other communities can, you know, remain 80% plus sort of like white and wealthy. Um, it's getting at this issue of spikiness. Like it, it doesn't have to be a zero sum game here, right? Like we've seen integrated communities be successful. I would argue Beacon is one of those. It's still, it's still uh, like a diverse place with people from all different kinds of economic backgrounds. Can it go too far and tip over? Yeah, but that's their job to figure that out. Well, uh, and Jar- Jared, describe uh, the demographics of Havistra, which you know so well, and I know fairly well. Right, right. So, you know, Havistra, Havistra is a, an immigrant community, mostly Latino. Um, you know, it's historically an immigrant community from, you know, Irish to, uh, former slaves, you know, escaping the South to come and work in the North to, um, you know, Puerto Ricans starting in the 1920s, you know, evolving into Dominicans starting in the late (laughs) sixties. And now it's evolving into Central Americans. And that trend started around 2000. Um, and so, you know, even in that community, it's fairly spiky, right? It is, it's a, it's segregated. I mean, it's a segregated community like Sleepy Hollow is like Austin is mm-hmm. where you've got, you know, outer suburban areas that are ringing a downtown, which is predominantly people of color, um, and low, low income people. Uh, and then there have been sort of luxury developments built, but they're almost built like a gated community with little integration, physical integration into the downtown, which is changing now, finally. I mean, there's there's development occurring that's like better linking pedestrian access 
uh, and integrating developments like right into the downtown area. But I, you know, I personally would argue these, even these spiky developments where it's high luxury, but it's on the edge, <laughs> right? I would prefer, you know, mixed, uh, affordable plus luxury right in the downtown, like right in the center. Um, because we need to have integration and we need to be attacking these segregation patterns, not just on a regional scale, like what New Jersey's doing. And I would argue New York needs to do the same thing. I mean, Chappaqua, <laughs> we're coming for you. <laughs> uh, you know, it has to be done on a, on a community by community basis. Right. All right. So stop there for a second. I have always enjoyed our <laughs> conversations. I always learn something about it. Since we pay you an enormous sum for being a guest on this, why don't we just end with if people enjoyed your perspective and thoughts about communities, how do they find emergent urban concepts and you? Great. So, you know, anyone can visit um, www.emergentgroup.com. Um, you know, Google me on the internet, find me on LinkedIn, Jared Rodriguez. Um, you know, I'm, ha I'm happy to chat with, with anybody, really. It's sort of, you know, it's, re it's really important for us to have conversations about how the physical world impacts us. We don't do that enough. Um, we like to live in a social world, right, and be on Facebook and be having political debates. No, like roads and buildings and sidewalks and trees and rivers, right? These impact how we live our lives for real, like in the real world. It impacts your health. It impacts your longevity. It impacts who your kids are going to be around, who your child might marry, right? Like it's, this is really important real life stuff. And we should be having conversations about how to make it better. I mean, we've only got like one go around and it doesn't really last that long. So why shouldn't it be as great as it possibly can while we're here? I mean, really, what are we waiting for? Right? I think that's just the perfect way to end this discussion. <laughs> um, Jared, thank you so much for your time. This is Pattern and Paradigm. Um, and uh, we will be back with you next fall. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.